Good day everyone and welcome to AFMED's fourth quarter and year end 2020 financial results and corporate update conference call. At this time all participants are in a listen only mode. There will be a presentation followed by question and answer session, at which time if you wish to ask a question you will need to press the star and one on your telephone and wait for your name to be announced. As a reminder today's conference call is being recorded. I would now like to hand introduce and your host for today, Mr. Alex Fadoukis, Head of Investor Relations at Affamed. Please go ahead. Thank you, Tracy. Uh, I'd like to welcome and thank you all for joining us today for Affamed's fourth quarter in 2020 year-end financial results and operational update call. Before we begin, I'd like to remind everyone that we issued our release earlier today and it can be found on our investor relations section of our website. On the call today, we have our management team, Drs. Adi Hurst, our Chief Executive Officer, Andreas Harstrick, our Chief Medical Officer, Orange Sutilius, our Chief Scientific Officer, Wolfgang Fischer, our Chief Operating Officer, and then Ms. Denise Mueller, our Chief Business Officer, and Angus Smith, our Chief Financial Officer. The whole team will be available for the Q&A session. Before we start, I will quickly go through the safe hardware statement. Uh, today's discussion contains projections and forward-looking statements regarding future events. These statements represent our beliefs and assumptions only as of the date of this call. Except as required by law, we assume no obligation to update these forward-looking statements publicly or to update the reasons why actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in the forward-looking statements, even if, this even if new information becomes available in the future. These forward-looking statements are subject uh, to risks and uncertainties, and actual results may differ materially from those projected in these statements due to various factors, including but not limited to those identified under the section entitled risk factors in our filings with the SEC and those identified under the section entitled forward-looking statements and the press release that we issued today and filed with the SEC. With that, I'll turn the call over to Adi. Adi? Yeah, thank you, Alex. Uh, good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us um, for our fourth quarter uh, business uh, update call in 2020. Today, we will briefly review the key developments with the company, including our recent updates on the AFM-13 monotherapy interim fertility analysis, and the findings presented by Dr. Katie Rizwani at AFCR from the investigator-sponsored clinical trial at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, which is treating patients with a pre-complex combination of AFM-13 and cobbler-derived NK cells, and we will provide an update on the clinical progress of AFM-24 and our other programs currently in development. I will then hand the call over to Angus to discuss uh, our fourth quarter financial results. We will conclude the call by highlighting some of our key milestones. Um, we expect for Affimed for the rest uh, of this year. Um, we are very excited to share groundbreaking clinical data with you on our programs and demonstrate progress we're making across our pipeline, which has undergone an incredible evolution in 2020 and the early part of uh, 2021. 
Afim has been a pioneer in leveraging the innate immune system to fight cancer. We have spent a good part of the last decade developing our technology, the ROC platform, and our innocent engagers, and we're seeing increasing evidence that our technology can result in meaningful benefits for patients in the clinic. A very rewarding experience for patients, their families, the doctors who treat them, and for us as well. Over the years, we have established what we believe is a unique position for Affirmate to develop best-in-class molecules by engaging our first line of defense, our innate immunity, including natural killer cells and macrophages to guide these cells to the cancer where they can do what they are naturally intended to do and protect us from disease. We have conducted a lot of preclinical work to support our development strategy and to identify indications where we believe our innate and engagers have the best chance of success. We believe that we are now beginning to see the results of all of these efforts. As we've shared with you in the past, we believe that our innate and engagers are strongly differentiated vis-a-vis -vis competing platforms and approaches to helping patients fight cancer. Our Innate and engagement molecules, as uh, you'll know, bind to CD16A on natural killer cells and macrophages with high affinity. And the unique binding epitope on CD16A reduces competition with plasma HEG, leading to an effective tumor cell killing via ADCC and ADCP, which are acronyms for cytotoxicity and phagocytosis. Innate engagers show superior binding and retention on natural killer cells, which have been shown to persist over which have been shown to persist over several days. They are able to kill tumor cells independent, independent of the level of antigen expression. In addition, in case of pre-complex with our high affinity innate engagers, show improved tumor cell killing, which is fully maintained after freezing, thawing, and washing. A very important and unique advantage is that no matter how you design the effector cells, cold blood-derived uh, IPSCs or autologous come in need of all these platforms is that they need targeting. Our innate cell engagers enable natural killer cells to locate the tumor independent of target expression level and we believe that this is where our technology has a strong advantage. If you look at the different tumor targeting approaches, we believe our technology is the best way to target whatever NKSL product you work with. Over the last several months, we have been able to demonstrate that the exciting science behind our technology can produce highly encouraging clinical results. The recent announcement about the positive interim analysis of our ASM-13 monotherapy trial. The data presented from the study at MD Anderson on ASM-13 <coughs> combination with the NK cells and the data from the combination of ASM-13 with pembrolizumab, we believe provides validation for what we have been saying about our science and the advantages of our inertial engagement. Furthermore, these findings help validate our three-pronged development strategy, which leverages monotherapy in specific indications with a high chance of innate cell involvement, 
focuses on combination with indications where the patient's innate immune system is dysfunctional and C aims at activation of both innate and adaptive immune system by combining innate cell engagers with anti-PD-1 or PD-L1 checkpoint inhibitors. I would now like to briefly review the news we reported on ASM13 in the last few weeks. Last month, we reported the positive outcome of the interim fertility analysis for ASM13 as monotherapy in patients that suffer from peripheral T-cell lymphoma. As a reminder, the interim analysis demonstrated that cohort A, representing patients with at least 10% of tumor cells extracting CD30, achieved the predefined fertility threshold, and that cohort B, which includes patients whose tumors have lower CD30 expression, defined as from 1% up to less than 10% positivity for CD30, showed sufficient comparability to cohort A. Importantly, we noted that we saw complete and partial responses in both high and low expressing CD30 positive peripheral T-cell lymphoma patients. As a result, this monotherapy study will continue by combining the two cohorts into one for all patients with CD30 positivity. The outcome of the interim analysis was encouraging on many fronts. We now have a drug candidate that has the potential to deliver benefit to patients with PTCL who have exhausted options after undergoing multiple therapies, including experimental therapy. And AFM-13 could set the standard for accelerating our drug discovery efforts with our in-house rock platform leveraging the power of the innate immune system. As mentioned, we believe we have the first and best-in-class innate platform with a validated approach and broad potential that allows our drug candidates to be developed to fight a wide range of diseases, addressing high unmet needs in cd positive lymphomas and EGFR-expressing solid tumors, as well as other solids in hematologic cancers. Earlier this week, Dr. Rizvani of the MD Anderson Cancer Center presented data at a major symposium of the AACR annual meeting from the investigator-sponsored trial of copyright natural killer cells pre-complexed with AUSM-13. In the first cohort of that study, in which patients were treated at the lowest dose of 10 to the 6th cells and K-cells per kilogram pre-complexed with AUSM-13, we reported that all three patients experienced significant disease reduction with two partial responses and one complete response. The first patient dosed in cohort two, now we're using 10 to the seven pre-complexed NK cells per kilogram, was assessed with a complete response rate after a single cycle of therapy. In total, we have observed an objective response rate of 100% to date. Dr. Rezvani also discussed with you yesterday what she believes the opportunities are for this treatment. Importantly, we see the results from the study so far as validating the benefits of a CAR-like NK approach with high affinity binding of our innate cell engager molecules to natural killer cells, delivering meaningful benefits to patients. Our plan now is to continue to develop and customize approaches that leverage the unique and differentiating features of our molecules in combination with adoptive in case of transfer 
to provide options for treating a variety of hematologic and solid tumors in the future. <coughs> the study is currently recruiting and treating patients in the second cohort with 10 to the 7 K cells per kilogram. We expect Dr. Rizwani and her colleagues at MD Anderson will continue to provide updates on the study and update us on the success stories with patients throughout the year. Finally, late last year, we published final data from the Phase 1B study of AFM13 in combination with Merck's CD1 checkpoint inhibitor Keytruda in blood, the Journal of the American Society of Hematology. The data showed an objective response rate of 88% at the highest treatment dose, as well as a complete response rate of 46%. This data publication was another very significant step forward for Asimet, as it was the first time that the combination of one of our inner cell engager molecules with an anti-PD-1 checkpoint inhibitor demonstrated disease reduction and the ability to be safely administered with manageable side effects. The high objective response rate and complete response rates in this proof of concept study indicated that our approach of harnessing the activation of innate immunity could improve upon current therapies. This growing clinical evidence from AFM13 in our monotherapy trials, in the combination trials with uh, NK cells and other immunotherapies, we believe provide critical validation and confirmation about our innocent engager activity. Furthermore, it provides us with uh, critical knowledge and clinical experience that we are now leveraging and are applying across our development program. We now have clinical data from the AFM13 program to support our development strategy by demonstrating that our inner cell engagers can generate meaningful monotherapy efficacy, show substantial synergy with checkpoint inhibitors, and work in concert with uh, adoptive NK cells to drive responses even at low doses of natural killer cells. The data we have generated from AFM13 is thus informing the way we develop any other pipeline candidates notably AFM24 and AFM28. Here, too, we're making very good progress. On our ongoing AFM24 monotherapy trial is currently in the dose escalation uh, portion of our Phase 1 to A clinical study in relapsed refractory patients with any EGFR expressing solid tumor. We announced this morning that we have completed cohort 4, which was dosing patients at 160 milligram, and we're now recruiting and treating patients at a dose of 320 milligram, which is cohort five. The objective of the dose escalation portion, uh, portion is to evaluate the safety and tolerability of AFM24 at various doses, and to establish a recommended phase two dose that we can use in the expansion phase of the trial. At this stage, we don't yet have any information to indicate that we are yet at a pharmacodynamically active dose, nor have we reached a maximum tolerated dose, and we plan to continue to dose escalate. We'll have further updates on the progression of the dose escalation on our next earnings call. The dose escalation phase of the trial is enrolling all comers and is not yet enriched for any specific tumor type. In the expansion course, we will enroll patients into specific indications with known inner cell involvement 
and this should enable us to evaluate the efficacy of AFIM24. We expect to start the dose expansion phase of the trials in the second half of this year. We have also continued to make uh, good progress with the initiation of a combination study of AFIM24 with adoptive and caseload. We recently announced that the IND for the combination of AFM24 with NKGen BIOS autologous NKSL product as NK01 was cleared by the FDA. We expect to init initiate a phase 1 to A study for the combination in the second half of 2021. We're indeed very excited about the potential for this combination given the initial community data from MD Anderson with AFM13 and the exciting clinical data shown on our AFM24 poster at this year's AACR conference. In that poster, we were able to demonstrate that AFM24 in combination with adoptive and cable leads to a dose-dependent tumor regression in a mouse xenograft model, establishing a strong preclinical proof of concept for this promising combination. This important finding was further supported by data demonstrating that AFM24's ability to tightly bind to natural killer cells, as well as the cytotoxic potential to kill EGFR-expressing tumor cells, was unaffected by the presence of competing uh, polyclonal IgG. In stark contrast, cytoxymab cytotoxic potential was greatly diminished by competing IgG. The poster further showed that AFM24 induces a very prominent ADCP response, activation of macrophages, against EGFR-positive tumor cells irrespective of the presence of KRAS mutations, further adding to the reasons to believe for this highly differentiated drug candidate. Thirdly, we've also accelerated our plans to investigate AFM24 in combination with Roche-Atiso, uh, <clears throat> an anti-PDL1 checkpoint inhibitor. We believe the combination of AFM24 with Atiso could leverage the innate and adaptive immune systems in the fight against cancer. We expect to dose the first patient in a phase 1 to 8 study evaluating the combination in the second half of 2021. Now, our third wholly owned inhibitor molecule, AFM28, continues to advance through IND enabling studies, and we plan to release um, more details about this program later this year, including information obviously about the target and then the IND enabling preclinical data. Looking at our collaborations, we have uh, also continued to work closely with Genentech and Rivent as they move <coughs> their programs forward. We're very happy with uh, how these two partnerships are developing. Recall, we announced last August that uh, our 0789, 7089, uh, the former AFM26, which is a CD16A, BCMA targeting inner cell engagement, entered phase one clinical studies. And as we've said in the past, as far as uh, the arriving partnership is concerned, we are collaborating with them to move preclinical work for AFM32 forward. And just in case you missed it, I think we I think we lost Adi, but but just to, to finish up and then move to the financials, um, Adi Adi was mentioning that uh, just in case you missed it, Roy Vant has now announced that AFM32 is being directed towards solid tumors. Uh, and in addition, we have uh, 
want to highlight that through several recent transactions, we have strengthened our, our balance sheet, and uh, I will cover that in just a moment. Uh, overall, we are encouraged with the progress that we and our partners have made and are looking forward to a promising 2021. So this is Angus Smith, Chief Financial Officer of AppyMed. I will now review our fourth quarter 2020 financial results. AppyMed's consolidated financial statements have been prepared in accordance with IFRS as issued by International Accounting Standard Board, or IASB. The consolidated financial statements are presented in euros, which is the company's functional and presentation currency. Therefore, all financial numbers that I will present in the call, unless otherwise noted, will be in euros. As Adi mentioned, uh, through several recent transactions, we have um, been able to significantly strengthen our balance sheet, extending our cash runway, um, while enabling us to accelerate our multi-pronged development approach for our innate cell engager molecules. We ended 2020 uh, with cash, cash equivalents and current financial assets of 146.9 million euros compared to 104.1 million euros for December 31st 2019. The cash balance does not include the net proceeds from our January 2021 underwritten public offering or the 10 million euros we received from the first tranche of the Silicon Valley bank loan. The pro forma cash position as of December 31st, 2020, including net proceeds from our January financing activities, uh, would be approximately 244.5 million euros. Based on our current operating plan and assumptions, including the, the proceeds from the recent financing, we anticipate that our cash, cash equivalents, and current financial assets will support operations into the second half of 2023. Net cash used in operating activities for the year ended December 31st, 2020, was 19.4 million euros compared to 29.1 million euros in 2019. Cash flow from operating activities improved in 2020 due primarily to proceeds received from the Royvent uh, and Genentech collaborations partially offset by an increase in our net loss. Total revenue for the year ended December 31st, 2020 was 28.4 million euros compared with 21.4 million euros for the year ended December 31st, 2019. Revenue for 2020 and 2019 predominantly relate to the Genentech collaboration. Collaboration revenue of 19.7 million euros for the year ended December 31st, 2019 was from the Genentech collaboration. Collaboration revenue for the year ended December 31st, 2020, amounted to 27.8 million euros, with 26.2 million from the Genentech collaboration and 1.4 million euros from the Royvant collaboration. Research and development expenses for 2020 increased 14% from 43.8 million euros in 2019 to 50 million euros in 2020 due to higher expenses for um, uh, AFM24 and other programs, as well as uh, infrastructure investments. General and administrative expenses increased 34% from 10.3 million euros in 2019 to 13.7 million euros in the year ended December 31st, 2020. The increase predominantly relates to higher personnel expenses due to the increase in headcount in 2020 and to higher legal, consulting, and audit costs. Net loss for the year ended December 31st, 2020 was 41 0.4 million euros or 50 cents per common share compared to a net loss of 32.4 million euros uh, or 50 cents per common share for the year ended December 31st, 2019. The weighted number of common shares outstanding for the year ended December 31st, 2020 was 83.5 million. 
As of March 31st, 2021, our common shares outstanding were approximately $119 million. We encourage shareholders to also review our 20F filing for the year as filed with the SEC this morning. I will now turn the call back to Adi for closing remarks. Adi? Yeah, I'm back again. Sorry for this. Uh, I was just disconnected. But thank you very much, Angus, for jumping in. In closing, I would like to reiterate our request in the document for our very important achievements in 2020. The strong start to 2021 and for all the progress uh, we're looking forward in the coming months. We've advanced our strategy of exploring our internal engagers as monotherapies, and we're now exploring opportunities in novel combinations with uh, NKSL through partnerships we secured with NKMAX or NKGen, as they're called now, and Arteva. We're moving our AESM-13 monotherapy study forward with both high and low expressing CD30-positive PTCL patients. We are expecting that in the combination of ASM-13 with NKSELS at MD Anderson, as the trial moves through the course, our collaborators there will present their findings at scientific conferences throughout 2021. For ASM-24, we expect to complete the dose escalation phase in our ongoing monotherapy study and initiate the dose cohort expansion phase uh, in the second half. We are working quickly and efficiently to pre prepare for further investigation of combination therapies of AFM24 in solid tumors, first with NKGen BIOS SNK01 autologous cell product, as well as in combination with Artezo Roche PDL1 inhibitor. We expect, uh, expect to be dosing patients in both of these studies in the second half of 2021. For our preclinical asset AFM28, we expect to report data from preclinical IND enabling studies later this year and then subsequently file the IND in the first half of 2022. Finally, there is upside, we believe there is upside in our collaborations with Genentech and Royden um, because we have uh, the opportunity to uh, provide further meaningful uh, updates. Updates on these programs will remain largely, however, at the discretion of our partners, and we will continue to work and support them as they move their respective innate and engagement molecules through the clinic. Now, before we open the call for Q&A, I would like to say thank you to really a lot of people. So thank you again to the patients who entrust us with their help. Um, very important, I want to thank all Affimate employees who are working indeed very hard and very diligently to ensure that our progress our programs continue to progress and welcome and thank our new and old investors who continue to believe in us and support our scientific efforts. As always, we have the whole team on the call today and look forward to our question, to your questions. Thank you very much. Operator. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now begin the question and answer session. As a reminder, if you wish to ask a question, please press the star and one on your telephone keypad and wait for your name to be announced. So your first question today comes from the line of Do Kim from Capital Markets. Hi, good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my questions. Um, Adi, you said that there wasn't any pharmacodynamic activity at the fourth dose level for AFM24. How does that align with your expectations uh, for the dose escalation? 
And is there a dose level where you would stop at if you still don't see activity and, and just shift the development focus to combination strategies? Um, yeah, thanks for this question. I want to hand this uh, over to Andreas to uh, explain where we are. Um, but uh, what I must say is we've just finished uh, the uh, expansion of uh, the, the, the cohort four and now are moving into five, so we haven't really analyzed cohort four. But I'll let Andreas explain you where we are. Um, yeah, thank you, Adi. And, um, yeah, the, the answer is in line with what Adi said. Uh, we have not analyzed most of the pharmacodynamic readouts. Uh, in fact, for, for both cohorts three and four, we are using batch analysis here. Some of the assays like CD16A uh, receptor occupancy are quite new. So we will process the data that we have collected or the, the, the samples that we have collected. So what Adi said is we currently do not have the data to say whether we are already at a pharmacodynamically active dose. It's a possibility that we need to evaluate uh, over the next couple of weeks. Now, coming back to the overall strategy, as Fasadi has shown, uh, if we take AFM13 as a blueprint, uh, we have seen meaningful uh, clinical activity as a single agent in combination with PD-1 as well as in combination with NK cells. Uh, according to our analysis of the tumor biology, uh, especially in the field of EGFR expressing tumors, we expect to see exactly the same picture or the same pattern. So we believe there are uh, distinct disease types which will benefit from a single-agent approach as these patients have sufficient numbers and sufficient functionality of their own NK cells. Uh, we expect patients to, to benefit from uh, PD-1-based approaches. And then ultimately, uh, there will be tumors or there are tumors uh, where the patient's own NK cell number and in case of functionality is limited, at least initially. So these are patients who will be targeted with our NK cell-based uh, approaches, uh, possibly on the long run in combination with either single agent or PD-1 plus ICE maintenance. So it's a lot of flexibility, but uh, we believe that we will see, um, as I said, it's the same picture with, with tumor entities differing in their uh, biology, and they will need uh, accordingly different treatment approaches. Great. Um, and I have a follow-up question on, uh, on the pipeline. Um, given that you saw such strong responses with the uh, MD Anderson study, uh, how are you thinking about other opportunities in, in blood cancers and, and possibly revisiting CD19 but with an innate cell engager or going after CD20 or CD38? Um, I think these are all options uh, that, that are open. Now, again, CD19, CD20 is probably a field that is very well served. Uh, we see the medical need uh, clearly right now in other uh, areas. CD30 is, is an important area. What we just learned uh, from the study, and then when we look closer, is that CD30 expression is not only uh, limited to uh, T-cell lymphomas and Hodgkin's. Uh, we do see CD30 expression uh, on B-cell, uh, especially diffuse large B-cell. Uh, we also see CD30 expression in a very significant chunk of acute leukemias, which gives additional options for, for CD30-based therapy. And 
Uh, as you know, we are in collaboration with Royvent um, and, and Genentech, where we have not disclosed the target. So I think the ROC platform offers the versatility to address a number of, of different clinical situations, and, and this opportunity will expand as, as we go along, either in-house with our new candidates or in collaboration with our partners. Understood. Um, congrats on all the progress and the great data that you've generated so far. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Brad Canino from Credit Suisse. Still committed to disclosing first clinical data this year, and if so, what are the factors that you're considering to determine when to present it? And then just to be clear, it sounds like you're going to continue to a cohort six in the dose escalation or beyond if needed. Um, would that be 640 milligrams? Thanks. Andreas, did you get the full yeah. question? I missed the first half. Yeah, I, I missed also probably the first, but maybe I, I start to answer from the back end and then we, we see what we, what we are missing. Um, so first of all, again, we are currently accruing at uh, cohort five, uh, 320 milligrams. And as I said, we will have to analyze uh, our pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic uh, markers from the two previous cohorts. This will give us a picture where we stand in terms of pharmacodynamic activity, and this will guide our decision whether uh, to enroll additional cohorts. Now, as we have also said, uh, the uh, relative increase of, of or the steps, the relative increasing steps from cohort to cohort is guided by an uh, Bayesian um, assessment model, which will suggest uh, the, the relative increments from cohort to cohort based on the totality of the data we have seen over the cohorts as well as the data that we have seen in the previous cohort. So 640 is a possibility, but um, again, as we will collect data from cohort five, this may change to either a larger or a smaller increment, uh, depending on the Bayesian analysis. Okay, and great. And the first question was just, are you still committed to disclosing first clinical data this year, and what factors um, are you looking at to consider when to present? Uh, there is... Yeah, a certain element of unsecurity is still in there. Uh, we believe that by, by end of this year, we should have defined our pharmacodynamically active dose. And as Adi said, we are also committed to start to enroll into expansion cohorts. As we said, uh, once we have defined these uh, pharmacodynamically active dose, we will disclose the data of the whole dose escalation part, uh, including patients' characteristics, patients' responses, as well as the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic data that defines this dose selection. So our, our best estimate, I would say, is that this all will happen within this year. I just want to reiterate, so we're, we've just finished cohort four. What does this mean? So uh, we take about four weeks for uh, the last patient then to finish the dose escalation. At that stage, we can determine the safety and we can open to move to the next uh, cohort. However, uh, the assessment uh, of uh, such a patient is only done after after eight weeks. So currently we are uh, 
analyzing data of uh, cohort three and cohort four because we pulled those, and uh, that's what's um, been ongoing over the next weeks. So in essence, uh, the way how this has moved forward is uh, determined by really understanding the sa safety, getting to meaningful doses, and then in parallel do the assessments. Just um, to give you a little bit of an, an, an explanation of where we currently stand, and uh, such data then could be the basis of uh, further communications. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Yale Yen from Laidlaw & Co. Uh, good morning. Again, congrats on the yesterday's uh, fantastic results. Uh, I have two questions here. The first one is, again, based on yesterday's uh, uh, report, uh, do you anticipate also that for the AFM24 AFM uh, uh, and uh, SNK01 study that uh, sub later on you may actually preload it the NK cell uh, with the, uh, the engager, uh, or you feel this is not necessarily something that's uh, relevant for the AFM24 in solitary development? So we have currently disclosed the uh, three approaches forward with monotherapy, with uh, combination uh, with the autologous cell product, and uh, with the uh, anti pdl one antibody from, uh, from Roche. So uh, any other activities, so we're considering a, a, a number of additional options uh, for AFM24 at, at, at this stage. Amongst this, obviously, the uh, combination with an uh, uh, allogeneic cell product. Uh, so once we are uh, have fully validated all these uh, steps forward, we will discuss that. Okay, maybe uh, one more question on AFM13 that uh, last year, because of the COVID, you have uh, sort of paused the, the, the development in TMS. Uh, I just wonder with your current balance sheet and maybe a better environment, would you resume that study going forward or have you have any other thoughts? Um, so currently we have not reopened uh, this uh, particular arm as in uh, most countries where we are active in COVID is still uh, massively around. Uh, you can read this all over Europe. That's where the majority of the solids are. So we are still in the midst of a wave and not uh, after a wave. So the situation uh, hasn't, hasn't indeed changed at all. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Dana Graysboss from SVB Learning. Hi, thanks for the question. I'm going to start actually asking about the AFM24 pharmacodynamics and dosing a little bit more to make sure that I understand. Uh, so uh, I think last time you spoke about this, the planned cohort 5 was going to be 1,000 milligrams, and now you're down at 320. I presume what you said earlier that you have this Bayesian approach has changed what you had previously expected. And I wonder if you can get more into the details of specifically what changed from your expectations now as you actually have the data and, uh, you know, what might explain that change. And then just to clarify on the pharmacodynamics data, so 
you have not done the pharmacodynamic analysis of cohorts three and four, is that correct? But you did not see pharmacodynamic engagement in cohort two. And can you clarify specifically what the pharmacodynamic assays uh, you are completing? Andreas, do you want to take the questions? Oh, uh, yeah, this is a lot of questions. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I think we uh, initially had uh, planned, and this was when we first presented the study, uh, a relatively aggressive uh, dose escalation step, which would have brought cohort five, uh, as you said, to 1,000 milligrams. Now, already in cohort uh, two, and uh, we um, diminished the, the relative uh, increments as uh, we wanted to make sure that we have, have more granularity and, and really can titrate the recommended dose. Um, if you will, or if you look at the relative increments, we are at uh, basically doubling the dose uh, starting in cohort two. So it was really driven by the consideration that we need a uh, better titration and that the initial steps might be too big. Uh, now, in terms of the pharmacodynamic, pharmacokinetic markers, uh, what we said is that on the pharmacodynamic field, we will look at a number of uh, cytokines and on the profile of cytokines over time. Uh, we will use um, assays looking at the occupancy of CD16A receptors in circulating uh, target cells, as well as uh, some of the uh, subsets and activation markers within the, the NK cells. So this is the, uh, the, the pharmacodynamic panel that we are using. And as it was many questions, uh, I don't know whether I missed one, but. Yeah, I help you out here, Andrea. So why not get the, what have we seen on cohorts uh, one and two? So we consider those cohorts to be below the, uh, uh, a meaningful dose or a, a relevant dose. And uh, that's why we have been focusing on the analysis on uh, starting with uh, cohorts uh, three and four. So that's the um, uh, that's also the relevance that uh, we started fairly low with the dose escalation. Again, A from 24 is a is, is a first in class uh, initialing agent to be developed in a um, in a solid tumor indication with a, a more promiscuous target. Uh, as if that is not seeing any of the side effects that were previously reported for TKIs or uh, monoclonal antibodies at the dose levels uh, uh, investigated. Uh, we've been uh, moving. Uh, uh, straight uh, along in this uh, study. Again, this was all started in COVID. Uh, somehow we seem to <laughs> get COVID because the vaccination around, but it did impact uh, the uh, original cohorts in terms of how fast we could recruit. So I guess we have made the progress uh, for a phase one program that's uh, been uh, at least at the level of where others have been uh, and, uh, and others indeed have, uh, have reported much more difficulties uh, of starting phase one study during COVID. So I guess uh, that um, there is uh, we're full in our expectations, and uh, I'm just now at the level in order to look deeper into uh, what we have uh, what we have achieved. But uh, you're correct. Now we are in cohort five, and, and the data are just uh, coming in now. Great. And then one uh, other question for me: Can you talk about the rationale for an autologous NK cell therapy? Uh, which is you know relatively less experienced in the academic literature for autologous? And also confirm uh, what your starting dose will be for that combination, and if you'll be dose escalating both AFM24 and the cells, or you'll be holding one uh, constant. 
I'll hand over to Andreas again. Yeah, I can take that. Um, so let's start with, with autologous. Um, yeah, you're correct. There is clearly less experience and less literature about autologous. Now, uh, when we looked at the uh, data that um, NKGen or previously NKMAX has, has generated, um, what, what we saw first is they had established uh, a safe dose of their autologous and KSL product, and they have um, developed their manufacturing, their expansion uh, capabilities in a way that allows us to uh, use relatively high doses of NK cells on a frequent basis and, and can continue treatment for, for a pretty prolonged period of time. Uh, I believe in their uh, current phase one single agent studies, uh, some patients have been on study in excess of, of half a year. Now, what we also saw, um, remind you, there was a small Korean study published at ASCO in patients with non-small cell lung cancer where we evaluated their autologous and K-cell product uh, in combination with pembrolizumab, compared this to pembrolizumab single agent. Again, very small patient numbers. Uh, but if I recall the data right, there were about four uh, responses in treatment refractory non-small cell lung cancer patients with autologous NK cells uh, plus, plus pembrolizumab. Now, we also looked at these cells uh, in, in some of our in vitro uh, assays, found them to be very suitable to work in combination with our ICE engagers, specifically with ISM24. Uh, so taking all these data together, we believe that uh, it is a potential expansion of our opportunities uh, we have an NK cell product that is safe in the clinic, has an established dose, has shown uh, activity preliminary in an EGFR expressing tumor, which is non-small cell lung cancer, and uh, gives us another opportunity and basically opens a new field. So we, we believe it's worthwhile also to explore autologous NK cells in addition to, to allogeneic NK cells. Now, in terms of how the study is designed, uh, the Currently, the NK cell dose is fixed, four times 10 to the nine NK cells, which is the dose that was established by NK Max in their single agent studies. And we will have a titration of AFM24. Again, we uh, do not necessarily have to wait for the establishment of a recommended phase two dose um, in our single agent study. Our starting dose here for the NK cell study will be a dose level that has cleared uh, the safety in the single agent study. And uh, again, we will have to assess uh, where we are once we are ready to initiate the, the NK cell study, which what we said will be in the second half of this year. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Nick Abbott from Wells Fargo. Oh, good morning. Uh, um, congratulations on all the progress, and uh, thanks for taking my questions. The first one is on the preloaded NK cells, um, and, and hopefully I've got my maths right here. But you know, at dose level one, you've got a 100% response rate at a dose that's at the low end of approved CAR-T. So how do we think about this, given that CAR-T efficacies are tied to expansion of CAR-T? Andreas, you want to take that? 
Yeah, I can start and uh, maybe if you chime in, if I uh, So, um, yeah, I think what, what also Katie said yesterday on her call, uh, these data are extremely encouraging. Uh, of course, already with a very low cell dose uh, pre-complex with AFM13 and then followed by AFM13 single agent, you see, um, I would really say striking responses given also the pretreatment characteristics, the tumor load of these patients. So this really tells us that um, these NK cells uh, with a targeted uh, approach can, can, can eradicate, uh, even at very small uh, cell doses, significant tumor masses. Now, what also has been shown is that these NK cells that we are using in our collaboration with MD Anderson are produced by the specific uh, activation protocol, acquire some kind of memory-like NK cell uh, features, which allows them to persist uh, for a prolonged period of time. And these are data that are just generated. So we, we do have some persistence. We probably also have some proliferation, definitely not to the degree that uh, CAR T cells have. Uh, now, the reason to go into higher doses, and that is also what, what Katie alluded to yesterday, is to deepen the responses, but also to increase the persistence of the NK cells uh, beyond the one or two infusions that we are given, and to stabilize or to prolong these, these responses. And again, very small patient numbers, but what we have seen is with this very first patients at the higher cell dose of 1 times 10 to the 7, well, this patient went into complete response already after the first cycle. So if you, if you will, even, even more active, um, again, what was specifically encouraging is that this is a patient that not only failed all of the classic pretreatment, including chemotherapy, um, PD-1, and, and et cetera, but this patient, in fact, has a history of uh, having received a CD30 targeting CAR-T product and has not responded to the CAR-T product. Again, telling you that the, the mechanisms of action and, and the capability of the innate immune system and the T-cell system probably are different and I think are giving us very early, very encouraging data. Thank you. And then, um, you know, I, I believe you have a, a, a an option to license the cold blood NK cells technology from MD Anderson. So how do you, how do you, how do you think about that as a strategy versus Artiva? And, you know, does the company have the resources or interest to become a cell therapy company? Um, yeah, I'll hand that uh, question uh, back to Denise. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Sorry. I had, a, I had an issue with the connection. Can we repeat the question? Uh, yeah, it, it just, I, I believe you have an, um, an option to license the cord blood technology from MD Anderson, but then you also have the Arteva collaboration. And, and so the question is really, you know, going forward, um, does the company have the resources and or interest to become a cell therapy company, or you know, would, you con would you continue collaborating with cell therapy experts? Yeah, good, great question. So as far as MD Anderson, MD Anderson goes, we've always had the option to take the license for the World Drug Rights. And, and at the start of the clinical study, we felt that that was the prudent time, and we made the decision to take that option for the license. 
um, such that the clinical data held and was very good that we could potentially move that forward and, and take that product ourselves. And so that's really providing optionality. We also really much, very much uh, value our collaborations with NKMAX and Arteva, and those are focused in, in similar but different areas and provide us with a multi-pronged approach to identify optimal ways to combine our engagers with NK cell therapy. And at any point in time, <clears throat> we could have control um, of the, obviously, the MD Anderson NK cell product, or we could pursue, you know, a more strategic partnership with an NK Matt or NK Gen, actually, they just changed their name, um, or Arteva. So we're just going to let the data drive our decision moving forward. And I think it's still early days. It's very, very promising. And we haven't um, made the strategic decision that we're 100% going to become an NK cell company, but the data is promising and would lead us to consider that at some point in the near in the, in, the, in the future after more data is generated from all of these collaborations. Great, thank you. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Ye Yen from Laidlaw and Co. Uh, thanks for taking up the question, uh, follow up questions and just a very brief one. First one is that. Uh, is there also an update on the at ASCO for the uh, CB and K uh, FM13 uh, combo at, uh, in place? Angus? Go ahead, Denise. I can take that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Katie Rosmani has a session um, very similar to the session that she had at AACR where it's focused on cellular therapeutics. Um, we are not confirmed as to whether or not her panel discussion and presentation would include an update on the on the clinical trial that we're doing with her, but it certainly is an option. But we don't have confirmation of that just yet. It it it, it may be it may be there, but we're not sure yet. Okay, and maybe just quick one that uh, she mentioned yesterday that if the that the data still very robust going forward uh, for the phase one study. It is possible to advance to phase three. Uh, any comments on, uh, on your side? Um, no, we don't want to comment on this at this stage. I guess that uh, for the time being, uh, we want to finish the dose escalation, identify the optimal dose uh, for the uh, for the cells, and with that information, then decide on how to proceed. Okay, great. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Maury Raycroft from Jeffrey. Hey, uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks for taking my questions and congrats on the progress. Um, just a quick one on AFM24. Just clarifying, uh, you commented that at the initial doses so far, you're, you're seeing a better safety profile than what you would expect with TKI or Cetuximab. Just wondering if you can comment more on what differences you're referring to and would you expect that to be independent of the PD biomarkers? Andrea? Um, <clears throat> yeah, as we said, we um, would like to, to uh, present all the data uh, once we have established uh, pharmacodynamic um, active dose. What we can see is that we have not seen um, some of the, the hallmark side effects, for example, skin toxicity, or magnesium losses or so, which you would expect with, with EGFR. Um, but again, as we progress through, we will uh, add 
we will collect more data. Um, but I think it's so far in line with uh, our preclinical study, especially with Sinomorgus monkeys, uh, remind there, even with the highest dose, we did not see any, for example, skin toxicities, uh, which is in line with the completely different and innovative mechanism of action of this drug. And the second question, or the second part, was again relating to PD. Can can you repeat it? Um, yeah, just wondering if the the safety effects. I guess um, do you view is is that independent of the the PD biomarker assays that you're doing, or should they kind of go hand in hand? Um, yeah, I think we um, again based on the uh, mechanism of action and on the PD panel, we would not expect to see a direct correlation between. Um, any potential side effects and NPD markers. It's, it's a new field, but um, again, the NK cell, as we have learned from AFM30 and also from Katie's study, is, is pretty pretty focused, I would say, and we have not seen in, in all of our NK approaches, for example, of significant organ toxicities, and we, we expect that the same will be true for AFM24. Really helpful. And then one quick question on the AFM13 pivotal study in PTCL. Um, just wondering if, uh, at this point, if you guys could provide any more clarity on enrollment expectations and, and whether um, the final data could be second half of this year or first half of 22. Andreas, you want to take that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically, what what Adi mentioned already around cohort C is the TMS cohort. Uh, we are still in the, in the middle of the pandemic uh, situation. Um, U.S. is getting a little bit better, uh, but uh, Europe is still heavily affected. So, as we said already uh, during the interim analysis or around the interim analysis, currently we do not feel uh, comfortable to give a very concrete date uh, in terms of enrollment. Um, remember, protocol-mandated cohort B was on hold uh, while we we're conducting the interim analysis, so cohort B has now been reopened, but I think it's too early to uh, assess the full impact and then may make a concrete uh, prediction of, of the timeline. So I think if we if we um, have reopened cohort B for a little bit longer time and we have a better grasp on, on the COVID situation, we should be in a, in a position to give you a, a more granular answer than, than we can right now. Makes sense. Okay, thank you for taking my question. Okay, Gita, thank you very much, and uh, I guess there are no further questions, correct? We have no further questions, so if you wish yes. to continue. Yes, um, thanks very much. I just um, um, want to thank all uh, everybody who was attending today for their uh, listening in and, uh, and questions, and uh, look forward to, to further updates in the um, next uh, six to nine months as we proceed. Uh, I wish you all have a, uh, a nice day, and... Uh, uh, subsequent good meetings with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. That does conclude your call for today. Thank you all for participating, and you may now disconnect.